Okay, so um, I'm very excited to introduce Chris Bryant onto the Future of Foods interviews. He is the director of Bryant Research and head of policy at the Alternative Proteins Association. He is a social scientist and an expert on alternative protein markets. He has also published several papers on consumer acceptance policy and the social dimensions of cultivated and plant-based meat, uh, as well as fermentation-derived proteins. And he's got, had extensive experience in the industry. He's worked with Formo, Ivy Farm Technologies, Aleph Farms, Wild-type Pro-Veg International, Mercy for Animals, and the Good Food Institute. And I'm excited to announce that Bryant Research are the first sponsors as of November of Future of Foods. So could you start by telling us a little bit about uh, Bright Research, how it came about and what the general philosophy is behind the organisation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I started Bright Research just as I was finishing my PhD in 2020. Um, at that time, I was doing a little bit of consulting already with some animal non-profits and alternative protein companies. Um, and I found that I was able to continue doing that, which you know I was delighted with. Uh, I am very excited to be working in this area really for its own sake. And I suppose that is the case with a lot of people who have the privilege of working in alternative proteins, a lot of mission-driven people. Um, and that's certainly the philosophy of Bryant Research as well. We're a private company, but we're not profit maximizing, I suppose you could say. Um, this is mainly a vehicle for us to be able to help advance the protein transition um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, we work with a lot of animal protection nonprofits, uh, alternative protein companies, um, and we also do some independent research, but everything that we do is with the goal of helping as many animals as possible. Mm. So the companies that you've worked with so far, is this is this as a result of uh, kind, of, kind of direct research for their marketing or for their policy? Um, is, is that the sort of thing? Yeah, for the most part, uh, working with alternative protein companies, a lot of what we do is consumer research and market and marketing research. Uh, so that can include things like we do a lot of nationally representative uh, surveys where we'll kind of go out to a thousand people from uh, a given country and, and get their views on a particular issue. Um, sometimes we'll also do experimental things where we're comparing, for example, uh, the appeal of different packaging for alternative protein companies uh, and things like that. But yeah, it's all to do with uh, encouraging consumer positivity towards uh, alternative proteins and helping these companies get it right when it comes to uh, their positioning. Right. Okay. Uh, it sounds like we have a similar sort of mission. Um, so, with that in mind, um, is there is, have you noticed any um, changes in eating habits? With, you know, from your research, what are the general food trends and the changes that you've noticed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the last five years really has been an incredibly exciting time for uh, the movement. I think I got into this at exactly the right time. Um, in the UK, I often point to the Greg sausage roll as a, a bit of a tipping point for, you know, lots of food service then following suit and starting to uh, offer plant-based options. And in that time as well, there's been a massive increase in the number of people in the UK following a vegan diet. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's both of those indicators, right? Number of people who are, are committed vegans and also, uh, generally the sales of, um, uh, animal product alternatives have really been going up and up in the time that I've been working in this field. So, uh, I think that's fantastic indicators of progress both. Yeah. So there's, uh, so there's, and so people are eating more plant-based foods, um, what do you think is causing that? Have, have you any idea from your research what the, you know, mm. what is? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, so when we look at uh, people moving away from meat and animal products, moving towards alternatives, uh, a lot of researchers talk about these push and pull factors. So you have push factors, which is, you know, pushing away from animal products. And that's things like uh, traditional animal advocacy, talking about animal cruelty, uh, talking about environmental impacts, talking about health uh, implications. 
Um, that's push factors away from animal products. And then you also have pull factors towards the alternatives. Um, and the idea there is that if we can get meat and animal product alternatives, which are very, very good, mm -hmm. uh, there's you know more of a pull towards the alternatives. Uh, and that combined with the push away from animal products is what is going to move us in that direction over time. So in terms of the pull factors, we're talking about things like the, the taste and quality of meat and dairy alternatives. Uh, and also the price is a big thing as well. That's been quite an interesting thing to observe over the last couple of years. Uh, most animal product alternatives and plant-based products are still more expensive than the animal products that they're designed to replace. If you go and buy you know, plant-based burgers, they're probably costing you a little bit more than the beef burgers currently. That's not always the case. There are somewhere there's price parity already. Uh, but that's really been something that's been changing during this time of uh, massive inflation. Obviously, the last couple of years, we've had very high inflation, uh, particularly in the UK. And interestingly, when you look at that, so I think in the sort of short term, that has probably hurt sales of alternatives because they are they do tend to be more expensive and people have a little bit less money to spend. So they're going to be less likely to opt for more expensive versions. But the effect that that's had on the relative price has been to close that gap. If you look at the inflation on uh, beef or pork or chicken, these all had double digit inflation uh, in the year to 2021. Uh, and in, during the same time, plant-based products uh, actually went down about two and a half percent. So that gap is closing and that's to do with the relative efficiency of inputs. But animal products, of course, very inefficient when it comes to inputs. The animals need to eat a lot of calories in order to yield you know, a fraction of the amount of calories in animal food. Um, and when the price of those inputs go up, as it has done with the war in Ukraine, putting pressure on grain supplies and everything else, that has a disproportionate impact then on the animal products. But the plant-based products, which are much more efficient in terms of the amount of inputs they need to use, have been relatively unaffected by that kind of uh, by that kind of inflation in in the feed market. Um, so, although it's been kind of a, a negative thing in the short term, I think it's going to end up being a positive thing in the long term because it has closed that gap. Animal products have got expensive quicker than than alternatives. Okay. Um, I was just thinking while you were saying that, I was wondering whether um, whether the break from Europe, if Brexit had had any impact, do you think on the price of meat and whether that might kind of level out in um in the future as more and more deals are made I for sure one extra factor isn't it yeah for sure well there's actually been a ton of interesting effects from uh brexit initially when we when we left the european union one of the first things that you saw was um shortage of people wanting to work in slaughterhouses in the uk um and there was a few news stories a few years ago Essentially, all of the, you know, most of the slaughterhouse workers were uh, Eastern European immigrants. Uh, and when they had to leave after Brexit, suddenly it turns out not very many British people want to work in slaughterhouses. Who would have who would have guessed? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there was massive problems around that for a while. They were looking at bringing um, uh, having convicts fill the gap and work in the slaughterhouses as sort of uh, obligatory labourers of sorts um they also were at some point um exporting live rich animals to europe to be slaughtered in european slaughterhouses yeah. to then be imported back into the uk which of course you know terribly inefficient bad for the animals uh everything else so that was kind of some of the immediate impacts of brexit longer term uh again we can try to wrestle some benefits out of this so one of the major uh, things that we've been looking at is the novel foods regulation. This is a framework for approving new foods that we've inherited from Europe. Uh, and at the moment, we're sort of in the worst of both worlds with respect to novel foods regulation. We've got this European system, which is quite lengthy and cumbersome and, and difficult for companies to navigate. Uh, but the benefit of having that before was that if foods are approved in Europe, they're also approved in the UK. That's no longer the case. So there are now situations where there are alternative protein products which are approved for consumption in the EU, but are not approved in the UK, even though it's the same uh, set of regulations, same set of rules. 
Mm. So yeah, we've lost that synchronicity, and at the moment it's it's bad. But again, I think you know the UK government's currently looking at uh, revising the novel foods approval process. So there is potential for um, you know more efficient routes to to come out of that. Yeah, there was some uh, there was some indication that their approach to the um, the kind of novel foods regulation was going to be made more flexible what what's what with Aleph farms kind of seeking regulatory approval in the UK rather than in the UK and then um, rather than in the USA um, indicated that there might have been some some um, uh, you know kind of some sort of sense of agreement that perhaps you know there would be a VIP lane for this particular sort of area of food but of course it's still it's all still very new and unknown but that was yeah I, it, that's an interesting case they have done their applications in the UK and in Switzerland which of course is also sort of has the European framework but is not part of the EU mm. um, and so my read of that is that perhaps they're trying to feel out what a, a framework like the EU uh, how, how a framework like the EU would react mm. um, and they're able to essentially test that in these yeah, non-EU, but using the EU system countries. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see with that one, won't we? So um, do you, uh, yeah, you've, you've completed a number of, uh, of research papers in the field of alternative proteins and public attitudes towards it. So could you tell us um, if there are any standout findings, which you think might surprise industry or, or the public that you've discovered? Yeah, definitely. There are a few surprising things that we've come across that can be, uh, you know, a little counterintuitive sometimes. One of the most surprising findings that uh, comes to mind, first of all, is on the topic of farmers. Um, and of course, this is something which becomes relevant in this conversation about protein transition, right? People worry what will happen to the farmers, will there be enough farming jobs and so on. Um, we looked at some survey data from uh, France and from Germany, uh, and we asked people about their diets. We also asked them if they themselves work in uh, animal agriculture or meat processing, right? So are they connected to essentially the meat industry? About 5% of people said that they were, and it, within that 5%, there's higher rates of meat avoidance compared to the rest of the population. So we had fewer people calling themselves omnivores. Um, we had more flexitarians. In Germany, especially, there's a lot of pescatarians, people who are not eating uh, any uh, red meat and poultry, um, and at hi higher rates than people who don't work in the meat industry. So we're very surprised uh, by that finding. I think that can be a case of it's more difficult to ignore the reality of what it takes to put meat on the plate if that's you know you're you're working in it every day. So that's something that was very surprising. Another thing that's been surprising is the rate at which alternatives have been getting better so we did one survey in belgium where we ran we ran the same survey one year after the other and then we're looking for differences between the two years 2019 we had 44 percent of people in belgium saying that they were satisfied with existing meat alternatives um and when we ran again in 2020 that had jumped up from 44 to 51 percent so a seven percentage point increase over the course of a year, really quite remarkable. And that's you know one data point to show you the rate of progress for alternative proteins as well. Yeah. Um, I, I think mean, there's anything else in that. I mean, you, you wonder whether that is actually the taste or whether that is sort of public perception, because I suspect lots of people um, can don't want to like it. And so they don't. And then if they are more happy to like it, then they're more likely to like it, if that, if that makes sense. Maybe, yeah, certainly in like meat reduction psychology in general, um, the central process that everything kind of relates back to is this cognitive dissonance and motivated reasoning, yeah. uh, which comes from that, right? So the typical scenario is that, you know, somebody knows that they don't want to give up eating meat, and so they've got that conclusion and now they're going to work backwards to, you know, subscribe to some premises that will leave there and that lead there. And that's how you get people 
saying things like animals can't feel pain but lettuces can right it's <laughs> would, yeah. would anybody claim to believe these things if they if it wasn't in the context of trying to justify meat eating probably not and there are other kind of beliefs that stem from that and attitudes that stem from that as well and i think yeah you're hitting on one of them there it's like some people in some cases might be motivated to think that they dislike uh, meat and uh, animal product alternatives because there's an implication that they ought not be eating the meat and animal product yes. alternatives. And so it's kind of a defensive reaction. Yes. And also perhaps they don't want to uh, align themselves with vegetarians and vegans because because they you know, might have a, a preconceived idea of what that means. For sure, yeah, that's definitely a factor there, these kind of social expectations and labels that we subscribe to. And then, you know, there can be uh, sort of low-key societal dislike of vegans, right? Or sometimes not that low-key, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, that is coming from the same sort of thing. And that's an interesting, um, That it becomes interesting when we talk about cultivated meat, because when we look at plant-based meat alternatives, Generally, they're more so appealing to vegetarians or to flexitarians, people kind of meat reducing already. Um, but when we look at cultivated meat, most vegetarians are not really interested in cultivated meat. They don't want to eat it. They don't really want to engage with it. Uh, and meat eaters are the group, including heavier meat eaters, to be more likely to say that they would eat cultivated meat. So I think that that is probably a good thing, right? It, because it avoids exactly what you're talking about, that kind of association essentially don't want cultivated meat to come to be seen as vegetarian food yeah. uh, as as plant-based meat might be to some extent and yeah you're absolutely right that can that perception can be a barrier to people engaging with it yeah have you is this a question which you've asked people um yet um if you've asked sort of meat eaters or if you've asked the sort of general public whether they are whether they would like to try cultivated meat whether they are sort of open to eating cultivated meat yeah absolutely that was my phd uh research was on public perceptions and consumer acceptance of cultivated meat um there's been a bunch of studies on this topic i think uh you generally have around about a third of people who are say that they're willing to eat it and are quite you know open to doing so um and then you have a contingent at the other end who's very uh, opposed to the idea and oftentimes are orienting their worldviews around naturalness. And this is you know, a violation of naturalness and that becomes a, a bad thing in itself or perhaps has implications for other things like people infer that if it's unnatural, it's therefore unhealthy or unethical or, or bad for the environment, right? which of course is not necessarily the case. And uh, we can talk about that as well. Um but yeah, so there's there's really a spectrum of, of views on cultivated meats. Um, and as with anything, you know, when it first comes to market, it'll be you'll get the group of people who are very enthusiastic and early adopters. Uh, perhaps they're willing to pay more. Um, uh, they're likely to be, you know, living in urban centres, kind of younger, left leaning people who are the most enthusiastic about this product. Um, and I think that's reflected in some of the uh, some of the product launches that we've seen so far. Um, but yeah, beyond that, uh, yeah, you have some some people who are kind of on the other end of the spectrum will be uh, what would be called laggards in this framework, right? It's like the last to the last to adopt some new innovation, yeah. um, and it seems that often those people are the loudest, <laughs> right? People who object to anything uh, like to say so at a disproportionate rate, such that you can kind of get the impression that that's a more of a common opinion than it than it is yeah. it would be i think it would be an interesting question to ask people like that um what would have to um what changes would need to be made to cultivated meat to make it more more appetizing to them you know what would need to happen to it to make them want to eat it uh I for sure yeah i mean i suspect yeah was, um some um you know some deliberation <laughs> I'm, you know, yes. I, that, I, well, yeah. I think that's. Like to say is, 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 is that there isn't anything you could do to make me eat that. But, but clearly, <laughs> some people, yeah. Yes. Some people, for sure. Well, I think, yeah. Delib deliberation is uh, an interesting way of putting it because definitely one of the most consistent predictors that we see when we look at 
you know what correlates with likelihood of of trying cultivated meat is familiarity so people who have heard of it people who know a bit about it are far far more likely to want to engage with it and when you look at the people who say they're not interested in eating it most of them have never heard of it this is the first time they're hearing of it right it's a new uh, unfamiliar and kind of scary thing in their view um and i think that's quite encouraging as well because that kind of implies that acceptance will increase over time right barring some sort of disaster uh people become more familiar people become more open to uh to eating it kind of naturally as a result yeah um okay i want to just go back to um the what you said about uh people working in the meat industry uh are more likely to kind of cut down on their meat eating i mean is this i suppose what this shows is that um uh is that education around around uh the the uh, current conditions of factory farms and animals in factory farms would impact positively on people's meat eating i i know that lots of people um you know i did a little survey recently on you know what's stopped people eating meat what's kind of turned people into vegetarians and that uh, and there was quite a few of them um talked about the new film about the octopus um my be- mm. was it my beautiful octopus i can't remember what it was called my octopus teacher is that the one my you octopus teacher, that yeah yeah so there was that and cowspiracy so sort of films that they've seen education educational films have have impacted kind of directly on them um yeah absolutely um documentaries are the top cited um you know what made you go vegetarian or vegan answer it's documentaries uh i think sort of head and shoulders above anything else i think beyond that is like conversations with with friends if i recall correctly but documentaries the top one um and especially animal related things i think that there i think that there's a bit of a myth that talking about animal cruelty in this context is a bad idea you're going to turn people off you're going to turn people away people don't want to hear about it people don't want to hear about it that's true but that's because it works as a message um there's some studies comparing uh you know if we show some people an animal cruelty message some people an environmental message some people a health message the animal cruelty message is is oftentimes associated with uh the highest percentage of people afterwards saying that they're going to try and change their diet and also animal motivations are associated with a greater degree of dietary change so like going vegan instead of going flexitarian for example as you might if you're like a health concerned or environment concerned um and also sticking with that change for a longer period of time if you know if somebody adopts a vegan diet for health reasons they will find it has whatever effect it has on their health some people will get benefits some people won't um and if they don't and they were only interested in their health to start with then uh, yeah they're probably gonna they're probably gonna leave it yeah. um but yeah those animal cruelty images whilst very unpleasant to look at and frankly unpleasant to share just kind of socially right mm. are very important in terms of motivating me people to make a change okay 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 um wanted to go on to the next question so um i've i've often wondered about um market research techniques and and how um how accurate can be how you can avoid people saying uh you know saying things that they think you want to hear rather than giving their honest opinion so um so understanding human attitudes uh obviously you're an expert at this so and so can you tell us a little about the methods you use to ensure that research carried out by bright research is accurate and true and as close as you can get to what somebody really really thinks yeah, it's a good question. Um, there's lots of uh, tricky things to navigate in survey research around this kind of issue. Um, so you have what you're mentioning is called demand characteristics, uh, which includes things like social desirability bias, right? Like they uh, will give the answer that kind of makes them look good, uh, even if it doesn't really reflect their true attitudes, uh, which is certainly an interesting problem to contend with. Um, there's also concerns that, for example, if you're asking people about their intentions, well, their intentions don't always map onto their actions, even if they are being honest, right? Um, so there are kind of different levels of concern that one could have. That a few years ago as well, there was a lot of concern that um, a lot of uh, survey platforms were infested with bots, 
and algorithms that are just you know taking the surveys to get paid, but there's no one really on the other end of it. Um, so we you know we have changed uh, provider a couple of times in that time. Um, the provider that we use currently, I, I feel like I probably shouldn't name drop, uh, but they have uh, sort of rating systems in place internally such that uh, each account is linked to a person and the quality of their answers has some kind of score uh, that they can essentially get penalized if they're failing a lot of the attention check questions. So we'll put we'll put in attention check questions um, and questions that could be easily answered by a human but might confuse uh, an algorithm or uh, somebody who's you know answering without paying attention of course they're gonna they're gonna hit the wrong option so there's things like that that you can do to try and improve data quality um, and then when we come to thinking about things like social desirability bias um, and you know st stating intentions and then there being some difference between that and actions Usually we're trying to use various methods to try to get at people's true attitudes. So uh, the order of questions can be quite important. Like if you're giving away, giving the game away as to what you're interested in finding before asking about somebody's diet, maybe they're more likely to, to lie about their diet, right? So we'll try and ask those questions yeah. before people necessarily know what the survey is about. We also use very generic names for what the surveys are about, such that we don't have uh, like a selection bias of, of people taking this because they're interested in this topic right we want to get we want to get everybody who's who's not interested in this topic as well um so there's various things that you can try and do uh like that well we do have some experiments where the outcome is um like it's intention to change diet so for example we might compare you know different messages as i mentioned you compare like an animal message or an environment message and a health message um now if the outcome measure is on intentions well it's true to say that not all of those people who say they have an intention to go vegetarian are going to follow through if you have an experimental setup like that where you're comparing intentions between different groups hopefully that is equally true of all of the groups right so some percentage of the people who stated the intention will follow through and some percentage won't uh but unless there's a reason to think that 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 uh difference would be that percentage would be very different between the different groups. You know, if you have 50% of these guys saying they intend to change and only 20% of these guys saying they intend to change, even although the intention is an imperfect measure, we can mm. be pretty confident that the 50% that the condition is better. Um, so there's a few different things to kind of contend with in terms of data quality when doing this type of research. Um, and yeah, those are some of the measures that we that we have to try and ensure that we're getting good quality data. Okay, and I suppose the I suppose the complete anonymity of it um, oh. en ensures you know that, that you know there's no one watching them, there's no one who knows who they are, so they are more likely to be uh, honest in their in their responses. Yeah, I would think so. It used to be that most uh, surveys, if they weren't done in person, were done over the phone, and even that, I think there's a greater degree of like personal intimacy right which might encourage people to give those dishonest socially desirable answers mm. but i think you're right that insofar as you know they're completing a survey online and filling out a form and they're not they don't have to look anyone in the eye right yeah. i think that is gonna is gonna reduce that effect as well um that's an interesting there's probably some research on that hey yeah uh dif different socially desirability biases depending on how the data is collected but yeah i think you're probably right about that yes so as a result of the research you've carried out, are you um, how confident are you that the future of foods uh, is going to be more sustainable and more animal friendly going forward? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think there are certainly some things that make me optimistic about this. So you know, I mentioned the, the increasing number of vegans, the increasing sales of animal product alternatives really has exploded in the past in the past few years and so those indicators are moving in the right direction um but there is always more to do um and in particular uh when there is you know multi multi-billion dollar industry uh trying not to let itself go out of business you can expect them to fight pretty hard on the way out um and so we do see a lot of essentially lobbying from the animal industries um some of their 
tricks in recent years include uh, trying to restrict the labeling on alternative protein products. So you will see this debate uh, you know, replicated in a bunch of different jurisdictions and countries that you know, the claim is that phrases like plant-based burgers and uh, oat milk might be misleading to consumers and you know tricking people to think it's an animal product when it's not especially of course i've heard that this is a problem um right yeah yeah france seems to be particularly conservative with respect to protein transition issues (laughs) um particularly i suppose particularly proud and traditional food culture uh which is a part of it um, they have a very strong agricultural sector, don't they? So the you know the farmers in France are very powerful, for sure. And I think that it is on us to try to uh, create and highlight ways that we can do the protein transition away from animal products without having a very harmful effect on people who are currently working in farming. Mm. Um, ultimately, I. I don't think that it can be a good policy approach to try to have as a main objective creating or preserving jobs because that is going to result in situations where you're deliberately doing things less efficiently than you could in order to make jobs. Right? Sometimes I say, I know how to create thousands of jobs in farming tomorrow. We could ban combine harvesters. Yeah. Right? <laughs> now, obviously, that's a terrible idea. It's and true. so perhaps there's some other things than, than farming jobs that we ought to be taking into account in that equation. Um, but nonetheless, that kind of analysis is no comfort to the person who's, you know, well, I am an animal farmer and I am going to lose my job. So, you know, what do you say to me? I think there needs to be things set up so that we can help farmers to transition into alternative protein production for some mm-hmm. part, right? Growing crops for uh, plant-based products and for culture medium for cultivated meat. Um, and fortunately as well, the the new way that we're doing agricultural subsidies in the UK under uh, the Environmental Land Management Scheme post-Brexit uh, does have more payments for uh, basically land management um, and uh, you know restoring natural landscapes. So there are uh, other ways that farmers can make their land valuable uh, as opposed to farming animals. So things like that need to be need to be an important part of it as well. I think one interesting thing about the farming jobs point is a great way to kill farming jobs is to have factory farms, Mm. right? Because now we can produce uh, more meat with fewer workers. If you look at the uh, global numbers over the last 20 years, meat production is up about 45%. Yeah. And agricultural employment is down about 15%, right? So it's not necessarily the case that more meat consumption equals more jobs in farming, especially when we're increasingly moving towards these industrialized, efficient, you know, low number of workers systems. Uh, really what we want to be doing and the farmers that everyone has in mind when they think about protecting farming jobs are the small scale farmers. Increasingly, these guys are being priced out by big industrial operations which have you know terrible animal welfare terrible worker welfare as well by the way yes um and yeah they're not able to compete with those so i think that things there are other things that you can do from a policy perspective such as animal welfare labeling now that was being considered in the uk until this year and defra shelved it in the end they said we're not going to do that um after pushback from industry so there's there's the industry playing a role again but I think that in reality, animal welfare labels sure would hurt factory farms. And that's <laughs> the industry that's been consulted, all right, or has the loudest voice, we could say. But they would probably help small farms. If you have higher welfare animals on small farms, then they're going to have a better animal welfare label than the factory farms. And to the extent that that pushes people in that direction, it's probably going to support more jobs in the farming sector. So I think that. It was ill-advised to uh, drop those proposals, and I think that yeah, animal welfare labels probably would be something that helps support farming jobs. Yeah, I suppose if you had a label um, that this cow, um, you know, this meat has 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 come from a factory farm, you know, and 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 you had to be you you had you you, you know you. Had, you had to be clear about that and say it was a factory farm, you, you, you know, rather than kind of calling it something else like it, you know, 
a contained farm or something. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there'd be kind of words around having to say factory farm, but but you know clearly that would because it seems to me that um, if you ever say farm to anybody in this country or anywhere in the world, you know they imagine something quite kind of lovely and quite wholesome and quite green and you know where everyone knows all the names of their cows or or something. But it's but um, if people realise that the majority of their cheap meat comes from a factory then i think it would make them think twice about meat or i think so yeah. yeah and it's important for people to know that you know everyone says that they want to know that we ran a survey on support for various different uh policies that would um help move things in the right direction and animal welfare labeling was one of the most supported options right almost nobody says no we shouldn't do that um but those who do say it are able to say it very loudly and with a lot of money behind them. One other reason that I think it would be important to have it reflected on the packaging is because most of our meat does come from factory farms. But try to sort of obscure that and obfuscate it. One talking point that you hear on the other side sometimes is um, most farms are small farms, mm. right? Okay, that's that's probably correct. But that doesn't mean that most animals are on small farms, right? Yes. Most settlements in the UK are villages rather than cities. That doesn't mean that more people live in villages than live in cities. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an example of that crafty kind of wording that's, that's designed right. to mislead people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. One factory farm would equate to the same amount of animals as probably a thousand small holdings. Right. So, um, okay. Um, so, with that in mind, it's, it was interesting. I, I read something in your report, um, your report called Chewing It Over, where you said that public opinion is in many ways ahead of Westminster. So um, so with that in mind, I mean, clearly people don't want to be told what they can and can't eat. Um, and politicians clearly know that they're not going to win votes by kind of telling people that they should eat less meat. Um, but with that in mind, what do you think government's could do in terms of in terms of public policy to encourage people to reduce their meat consumption and to and move towards a more alternative protein yeah it's a good question there's so at the recent party conferences we saw uh rishi sunak saying we need to get rid of the meat tax yeah we don't have a meat tax <laughs> rather a complete i know completely fabricated but there we go it was like the um, bins, wasn't it it was the um it was the whole yes that's right yeah cancelling things that don't exist yes that's right that's mm. right yeah and uh, you know meat tax is interesting because that's kind of the f- most obvious policy in some ways right that's the first thing that people will reach for if the policy objective is try and reduce consumption of this thing then bang a tax on there it becomes more expensive people consume less of it is also terribly unpopular so mm. you know from a politician's perspective going after a meat tax is you know free money right yeah. uh, we had about 70 percent of people saying they're opposed to a meat tax uh in that research but that is not the only thing that can be done there's a bunch of other stuff which is all more popular than a meat tax um and so we can be you know a little bit more creative in our in our policy prescriptions one thing that has very high support, I mentioned that uh, animal welfare labeling has very high support. Actually, even higher support is just having higher standards of animal welfare on farms. Right? We already have some kind of requirements um, for animal farming in terms of welfare. Uh, and there's massive support for making that higher, right? We're, we're talking about upwards of 90% of people say, yes, we should have better uh, welfare standards on farms. Mm. Um, so that's the big one that we can that we can push for um i think there's a good case also for <clears throat> pardon me governments investing in alternative proteins we've seen some governments doing this already there have been big investments from uh the us from canada uh from denmark they have a very big um alternative proteins fund uh and this can also be done in creative ways that kind of links up with the farming industry so in Canada, they had a hundred million uh, investment to a plant-based producer, and it's on the condition that they were sourcing all of their uh, ingredients from Canadian farmers, which was a way of kind of give, you know getting buy-in from the farmers on that on that kind of policy, and it would 
help to um yes uh help to support them as well um there's a couple of sort of policy issues that are quite live in the uk at the moment one is uh, uh the novel foods reform as i mentioned we're going to look at changing the european system that we've inherited and i think there's some quite easy things that we can do in that uh so one is to have some sort of system for recognizing approvals from overseas right mm. we're making people jump through the same hoops as europe twice currently but further than synchronizing with europe we can look at saying as australia do and israel do if your new food product has already been approved in some other countries you get a shorter application process you get an expedited process if you can show you know we've already been approved in the us or, or elsewhere we're we're asking people to reinvent the wheel and, and jump through those hoops again um so i think that's certainly something that can be improved when changing when changing that and then the other thing is on labeling as i mentioned you'll get you know companies trying to say or you can't say plant-based milk and so on that's another thing that's quite live in in the uk at the moment we have restrictions already uh around uh plant-based products that can't use the term milk you'll never buy oat milk in the uk you'll only buy oat drink or oat <laughs> milk style drinking liquid or whatever it needs yeah. to be called yeah. but they want to go further they want to put those restrictions further you've probably seen the alpro product called this is not milk yes is being claimed that that is misleading people that it's milk so that's a that's an example of some of the just dishonestly frankly in bad faith on the other side it's you know the reasons are, are made up to to get to where they want to be but i suppose this is know. going to become um more of an issue perhaps when the cultivated meat is on the market you know because it it is meat but will we be, but will they be able to call it meat um yeah, no, that's a great point. I think there's an even stronger case for allowing cultivated meat products to use those terms because if you're somebody who has a seafood allergy and you're go you're buying some cultivated seafood and some regulator has decided that this it doesn't count as seafood and therefore it's not labeled as seafood, yeah. you're going to have an allergic reaction, <laughs> right? So there's a there's a food safety case for allowing these labels in the case of cultivated meat. Absolutely. Yes, that's a very good point. Um, so what's, um, you know, away from government, what do you think uh, industry needs to pay attention to um, in order to sort of best develop a more sustainable and animal-friendly food source, you know, to sort of grow it? So you, you know, what do they need to be, you know, paying attention to in, in regard to their market and, you know, that sort of thing? Well, I think the big things that I would advise alternative protein companies to prioritize improving are going to be taste and price um really if these products are, are nicer more pleasant to eat um people are going to be more likely to choose them and to buy them and repeat purchase them um and then the other huge one is price which yeah as i mentioned that that, that probably is going in the right direction on both of these things mm. right we we have um survey data showing more people say they like plant-based meat than did last year yeah. um and we also have you know data showing the price of these things coming down relative to animal products as well so i think both of those things are going in the right direction there's also an interesting point around uh healthiness or more around perceived healthiness really you'll have seen lately a lot of the discourse about so-called ultra-processed foods Yes. Um, and that, in my mind, is a complete misdirection. We've essentially created these categories which correspond to degree of processing. And then we've said, look, these categories correlate with health outcomes. And there are studies showing that, you know, more consumption of foods that are in the category of uh, ultra processed is associated with, with worse health outcomes. But the problem is when you categorize things like that, you're treating everything within each category as if it's the same. So if you have higher consumption of ultra-processed foods, it might mean that you have higher consumption of um, plant-based meats, or it might mean that you have higher consumption of Coca-Cola and, uh, you know, <laughs> Cheez-Its or whatever, right, whatever kind of un processed foods which we know are unhealthy. Um, so it's really an imperfect proxy for healthiness when we have better measures available we can just look at the nutritional content and that's going to tell us 
the the impact in terms of health. We don't need to turn to the degree of processing. Um, it would be like saying uh, we need to estimate these people's heights. Uh, well, we know that men tend to be taller than women, so we could do it based on gender. But we have a tape measure right here, right? We can just <laughs> we can just measure the thing directly. Yeah. Um, so it's is a bit of a misdirection, and I think the interesting point on this uh, is that alternative proteins probably need to be kind of mindful about how they push back on that. The first point is that although it is not a good, it, it, you know, there are many counterexamples you can have completely unprocessed berries or mushrooms that are poisonous to humans, mm. right? And then you can have uh, ultra-processed, you know, infant formula, which is vital for humans to stay alive in, in some conditions, right? Um, so clearly the the categorization is not perfect, but I think that we need to be careful about how we're pushing back on that. The first point is that it's a very intuitive thing. It, it feels true. To most people right more more natural equals more healthy yeah that feels true i, I can kind of get that it's not necessarily the case but yeah so we're, you're kind of up against that and then the second point is health-based marketing and health claims can make foods less appealing so particularly if you're choosing between should we talk about how healthy it is or shall we talk about how tasty it is right, in terms of naming it branding and everything else Talking about how tasty it is wins all the time. Mm. But if you can, as the meat industry, start this discourse about health and get the alternative proteins you know, defending themselves on the ground of health, if you can push that health messaging to the center, you're actually maybe making those things less appealing than if they're able to focus on the taste messaging. So it's, it's a little bit tricky to know how to uh, deal with that. I mean, it's... A misleading framework that's been established and you know scientific bodies are increasingly realizing that by the way the british dietetic association british nutrition foundation uh the scientific advisory committee on nutrition all of these bodies have come out in the last year and said this ultra processed thing is pretty misleading basically mm. um but it's not it's a battle which <laughs> can uh we'll have to pick carefully i think I have I have heard that response from from a few people when I've mentioned uh, cultivated meat, and that is before obviously you know clearly the other problem is going to be um, kind of genetically modified uh, cells in cultivated meat uh, because it's a uh, it's a big part of it and in a few in quite a few countries it's 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 banned altogether, and but obviously obviously cultivated meat is very sort of science heavy. You know, because it is almost entirely science. So it, it is, and uh, and genetically modifying cells means that you don't have to take, you don't have to kill that animal in order to sort of get the cells that you need. Um, so, but I imagine that's going to become an issue as well, probably going forward. But we're yeah, that's an interesting question. That could be certainly be one application of of GM and cultured meat that you could have. Um... Yeah, cell lines which renew, uh, so, so you don't need to keep killing animals. Frankly, I think the gain there would be pretty marginal. When we're talking about um, cultivated meat with cells taken from an animal, you know, you can produce thousands of tons of meat from one sample. Uh, so already we're looking at like, you know, a millionth of an animal in a in a steak rather than a, a hundredth yeah. of an animal in a steak or whatever it may be. Um, so I think that's already a massive improvement. I kind of so this is another interesting finding, I guess. I kind of assumed that people who say they would eat cultivated meat are probably going to be the same kind of people who say they don't mind eating GM. Um, and therefore, my guess was that it wouldn't make that much difference if we're talking about GM or non-GM cultivated meat. Right. As it turns out, it does make a difference, and people are less likely to say they would eat it if it's GM rather than non-GM which I found kind of interesting. I think that one of the reasons for that might be that a lot of people's engagement with this stuff, when particularly when they don't know much about it, is based on these kind of heuristics and signals. And if a food can say on the packaging, non-GM, then maybe that's giving them the signal or the reassurance that they are looking for along the lines of 
naturalness, right? If you see a product that says low salt, you're kind of assuming on some level that this is generally healthy. It's not necessarily claiming that. Um, so I think that that is, is part of the reason there as well. Yeah, certainly in Europe, uh, that is going to uh, going to cause problems. But yeah, it's, it's not the case that all uh, cultivated meat manufacturers are looking at GM, of course. So um, mm. perhaps mm. there will be different products for different regions, different uh, regulatory systems and different you know consumer sensibilities as well yeah and going back to um what what i asked about um advice to industry i i was i've i've spoken to a, a couple of guests about sort of sharing information sharing ip between them uh you know kind of wondering whether that would speed speed up progress if 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 they actually worked if they work together but of, of course it's a very competitive industry um, so what role do you think IP plays in alternative proteins? Yeah, it's really interesting because if you look at the alternative proteins industry, um, a lot of the leaders of companies um, and also a lot of the big investors, one thing they have in common uh, is that a lot of them are vegetarians or vegans. They're you know, mission-driven people. Um, and so on that basis, we might expect that the alternative proteins industry compared to other industries might have more of a propensity towards some sort of cooperative uh, IP sharing or, or something along those lines. Um, and we're doing a bit of research on this at the moment. Uh, we typically find that a lot of people do have those pro collaboration attitudes and sort of aspirations. Um, but for the most part are still constrained by the normal mechanics of business and investment right you can't uh you can't attract investor funding if unless you have some sort of proprietary ip that is going to give you an advantage um once right. you have investors they don't want you to be opening your books and telling all of the other guys what works mm -hmm. um there are some examples in other industries of of uh cases where it appears to be altruistic patent sharing right volvo invented the three-point seat belt and they said this is going to save too many lives for us to keep it exclusively we're we're going to make this open um tesla did a similar thing with their with their patents on electric vehicle batteries right the main thing is that electric vehicles catch on we're going to make these patents open as well mm. um so you know we could appeal to something like that but for the most part, companies are still kind of constrained by investor expectations and so on. There are a couple of interesting suggestions that we've come across in the course of this research, which could solve this problem, right? We we want the um, technology to be accessible to many people so that it can be it can be developed and can compete down the price. But we also recognize that we need some sort of mechanism for IP because that allows you to get investor funding and, and, and everything else. Um, so... One suggestion that we've heard is that investors aren't going to let you tell everybody else in the industry what worked, but they might let you tell them what didn't work. Right. So if you've tried, you know, a hundred ways to get to your cultivated meat product and 99 yeah. of them didn't work, that's useful information for the next cultivated meat company. Now your investors might not say you can't tell that information in the same way that they would if you're just proposing to tell them what did work, right? Just giving away the secrets. But you can save them a lot of time by stopping them from going down dead ends. Um, so that's something that that could potentially be done. The other thing that we've come across, and this is, I think this is a fantastic idea. This is super novel. This was published in Nature in the last month. Um, an idea called uh, benevolent patent extensions. So the idea there is that where you have a patent on some technology, which is going to be have some high social benefit such that we we want to get it now even though you've got patent on it right we can incentivize people to make those patents open in exchange for an extension on some other unrelated patent right so we're going to get we're going to, your patent on this technology is going to run out next year but you can extend that if you agree to make open your socially beneficial patent so that everybody can benefit from it um I've spoken to a patent lawyer about this and he said, that's a great idea. It's not my idea. I wish I could take the credit for that one, but um, that seems like a mechanism. I mean, it's originally been come up with for... It would have to be 
of of kind of similar value yeah i suppose there would need to be a lot of conditions sort of specified right what counts as socially beneficial um yeah is it is it of a similar value can you do something that's like a bit socially beneficial and then extend a massive patent maybe not um but yeah overall so there's there's certainly details to be worked out and i don't think any such mechanism like this exists currently uh but it could be a real game changer with respect to ip in alternative proteins and more broadly this is something that's originally come up with uh yeah. thinking about uh, global development things mm. right you have a patent on a malaria medication or whatever it may be it's, it's a way of getting those socially beneficial technologies open and more accessible and price competing down and incentivizing companies to do that because of course they will have hundreds and hundreds of patents. I think Samsung, you know, registers 150 new patents every month or something. So they, you know, it's, well, it's, it's clearly a lot of bargaining um, that, you know, that could be done. So um, sure. that's all. That's all really very interesting. Uh, a lot, a lot to chew over there. And um, right. so. Finally, Chris, I just wanted to know if there's any interesting areas of research you're working on right now that we should. Know. Yeah, there are loads. We at the moment we have about thirty projects going on, and they're all super interesting. I'll just tell you about some of the top ones. I think we have recently started working with a restaurant in India um, who are going to let us run experiments in their restaurant, uh, changing up the menu and things like this. And the exciting thing about that is we we're talking earlier about the imperfection of, of survey data that kind of cuts right through that problem because the our outcome variable in this case is going to be how many people have ordered the vegetarian option and we're going to know that number exactly uh so that's it's very close we have basically an experimental restaurant that we're working with and they're allowing us to do different modifications to their menu and so on over the course of a few months and we're we're going to look at how those interventions can help nudge people away from animal products oh, nice. uh so that's a really are interesting one. Doing that, are, are you looking at doing that in other countries as well as a you, well honestly it's fine. been we've we've tried to do something like that for some time um and generally the bottleneck is just like venue owners saying i mean we don't re we don't really want you doing changes to our menu that could affect our sales and things like that right which is completely fair enough of course yeah um but in this case this is like a a, a colleague um, and somebody known to me and somebody who is uh, vegan themselves. And so they're quite on board to uh, use their restaurant as a bit of a testing ground, which is awesome. Um, we've also done a project. Uh, well, earlier this year, we ran uh, some billboards. We wanted to see the effect of uh, anti-dairy, in this case, billboards in the city of Bristol. I live in Bristol. Um, so we ran all of these billboards. We had these pictures of of uh sad looking dairy cows and a message encouraging people to try plant-based milk um and here again we're trying to get around the problems of, of relying on survey data we had a few cafes feeding us information on how many people were ordering uh dairy or plant-based milk um we also had one plant-based milk company who was able to give us their regional relative sales data right and we saw this is um, we haven't published this yet uh but we saw uh, higher increases in their plant-based milk sales in Bristol versus the rest of the country, which is pretty cool. Oh. Um, and the other data collection that we did for that study was uh, looking in people's bins. <laughs> so my research associate and I were were looking in literally just residential bins on bin day to see how many uh, dairy bottles we could see and how many plant-based milk bottles we could see. And then, you know, working out from that, whether we saw a, a bigger increase in Bristol um so it's like some of the ways that we try and oh, wow. diversify a bit from the survey data but yeah all of our all of our projects are to do with reducing animal product consumption uh promoting alternative proteins and um advancing the protein transition so yeah we've got we've got a few dozen different things going on at the moment and i'm, I'm very excited about all of them honestly yes well i i i very much look forward to hearing more about them all um in the future thank you so much for coming on future of foods chris it's been a pleasure to speak to you uh, and i look forward to hopefully meeting you in person at some point in the future thanks so much alex it was a pleasure my pleasure